Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll review Phoebe Bridgers' new album, Punisher. She was on the show a couple of years ago playing songs from her debut, Stranger in the Alps, and since then, she's been everywhere. First with the group Boy Genius with Lucy Dacus and Julian Baker, then with Better Oblivion Community Center, a collaboration with her and Connor Oberst of Bright Eyes, but that's all later in the show. First, a classic album dissection. We're going to dig deep into Bill Withers' Live at Carnegie Hall, first released in 1973. Sometimes in our lives, we all Greg, we have been talking about doing a classic album dissection of Bill Withers live at Carnegie Hall for some time. Unfortunately, Bill passed on on March 30th at the age of 81 of cardiovascular disease. We are overdue to dive into this classic album. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He made many fine records in the early 70s at the start of his career. But I think the signature record is Bill Weathers Live at Carnegie Hall, which was released in April of 1973, Jim. And uh, mm-hmm. to me, if you want a one-stop shopping of what what Bill Withers was all about, this is the record for you. I also think it's one of the greatest live albums ever made. Forget, forget artists, forget genre, forget about era. You know, this is one of those records uh, that holds up over decades. Oh, absolutely. And I have you to thank because I had my obligatory... Bill Withers' Greatest Hits collection, and that was what my Withers uh, <laughs> collection was. And then you kept drumming into me the greatness of this album. And I'm an anti-live album, generally speaking. But what a fascinating story. Let's start with who this guy was. Bill Withers, born on the 4th of July. How much more American can you get? 1938 in West Virginia, where he grows up. As a young teen, a middle teen, he enters the U.S. Navy, spends almost a decade working as an aircraft mechanic. When Bill Withers emerges from the service, Greg, he settles in San Jose, California for a time, has a couple of odd jobs. At one point, he's a milkman before he winds up back in the aircraft industry. And that makes it sound, those two words, aircraft industry, makes it sound way more glamorous than it was. Bill Withers' job was installing the toilets in jetliner bathrooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's probably the least favorite part of an aircraft that anybody's ever experienced. The story goes that he goes to see Lou Rawls performing at a club in Oakland, California. And he is struck as much by the music as the fact that Mr. Rawls seems to be doing very good business that night (laughs) with a full house. I went down to St. James Infirmary And Bill Withers decides to begin working on his uh, songwriting abilities. He puts out a one-off single in 1967 that isn't really part of the story. But he moves to L.A. 
and then decides to get serious. He records a demo with the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. serious studio. It's an impressive demo. One of the band members is impressed enough to take it to Stax Records and begin playing it. He doesn't wind up at Stax. He winds up at Sussex Records. And this label pairs him with Booker T and the MGs for his debut album, Just As I Am, in 1971. Not only has he got uh, most of Booker T and the MGs, one of the greatest backing bands in history on that record, he's got people like Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and Jim Keltner, the great studio drummer. But still, nobody quite knows what to do with this music coming out of Bill Withers. He's 33 when that debut comes out. I mean, that, that's old in pop music terms. The first single comes out with Harlem on the A-side, but DJs begin playing the B-side. And that's where the Bill Withers story really starts, because that B-side is Ain't No Sunshine. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone it's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Becomes a big hit. The man is on the map with a third of his life already behind him. The follow-up album is even more successful. It's only a year before Still Bill comes out. That's got two hits at the top of the charts. Following up Ain't No Sunshine, we get Lean On Me and Use Me. Bill Withers is at the top of his game. And on October 6th, a Friday night, he plays Carnegie Hall. You know, the old joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? You practice, you practice, you practice. And if you're Bill Withers, you spend 33, 34 years at that point uh, learning your game. It's apparently a miserable night. You know, autumn in New York, they talk about, right? But no, this is one of those cold, wet, dreadful nights, not fit for uh, beast nor fowl. <laughs> and on Live at Carnegie Hall, Bill Withers is, is thanking people uh, continually for coming out in this weather. Appreciate y'all coming out in this rain. Yeah, it's uh, not a very forgiving night for, uh, you know, the audience, but they show up in droves. They fill up 3,600-seat Carnegie Hall, which amazed uh, Withers and his band and his managers and his record company, all of whom thought it was a bad idea to book Carnegie Hall. Up until this point, he'd basically been playing clubs like The Bitter End and The Troubadour in L.A., and he'd been an opening act for people like Blood, Sweat, and Tears or Jethro Tull whenever he did play larger places. So this was a big step for him. Well, and there's some hubris there, you know. I mean, Carnegie Hall is the premier concert venue in New York. I found a review from when the concert happened saying, you know, what happened here? Did the Apollo Theater move south? Uh, You know, it was one of those things where the audience became a part of the show in a big way because of of Withers' magnetism. I just call lonely brother
Still Bill, the second album, had been released in May of 72. And I think what's key to this record is that he had retooled his band by the time Still Bill came out, that studio album with the two big hits on it. You know, he had basically taken the core of the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band, which had back funk pioneer Charles Wright on hits like Do Your Thing and Express Yourself. Express Yourself! and made them his band. So they had been playing together on the road in these clubs and recorded this studio album. So they were quite primed for this show. Benoist Blackman on guitar, Melvin Dunlap on bass, Ray Jackson on piano and strings, James Gatson on drums, the great James Gatson. And I once talked to Withers, and he talked to me about you know, this band would rehearse constantly. They were rehearsing in James Gadsden's garage. And Withers used to joke around with the guys. You guys were the original garage band, you know? <laughs> um, you know, very proficient musicians, but they were doing it old school, you know, getting ready for going on the road or cutting a record by playing together in real time in their garage. So by this point, they had developed a real chemistry. In James Gadsden's garage, they became a great band together backing up Bill Withers' thing. They added a percussionist for this particular date, Bobby Hall, who was just a child prodigy. Uh, had played with everybody in Motown, The Temptations, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson. The one thing I need to add, Jim, here is that besides this amazing band, as we know, there was a lot of sort of gimmickry done with uh, a lot of so-called live albums in the 70s. Live wasn't really live because sometimes the entire album, except for the audience applause, would be uh, recut in the studio and passed off as a live album. In this case, this was very much a live recording, except occasionally you hear a horn or a string part that comes in. Uh, those were overdubbed later. I was disappointed to find that out. Uh, years mm. ago, that uh, not everything was live on this record. It would have been amazing if they'd had an orchestra present in the room, but they, they couldn't afford one at the time, I'm sure. Uh, they did overdumb some strings and horns in L.A. It was Carnegie Hall. You, you'd think there'd be an orchestra just laying around, you know? Yeah, no kidding. But it doesn't detract from the record at all. The core of the record, Jim, is, is Withers interacting with that audience and with that band in real time. No, and it just builds and builds and builds. The the feedback loop, the energy going in all three directions, build to the band, to the audience, the audience back. You know, I, I think the best way, Greg, to deal with what originally were uh, four sides of vinyl LP is to talk about some of the songs. And I wanted to start with the opening track, Use Me. Hey, hey. Now, it was a hit at, the, at that point for Withers. It becomes, as everything does on Live at Carnegie Hall, it becomes something different. It, it's looser, it's funkier, it's more soulful, more immediate in the recorded version, I think, than even on the album version, which is great for sure. 
you know, Bill Withers, I think because Lean On Me is such a powerful and emotional song, many people think of him as looking uh, always on the bright side of life. But this is a man who has done a lot of living <laughs> by age 33. And Use Me is a song that is about a, a sexual relationship where he feels these partners are using each other, that he feels he's being used. Uh, you really do abuse me. You get me in a crowd of high-class people, and then you act real rude to me. You like to get me among your high-class friends, uh -huh. Robert Christgau, the great critic, called it uh, one of the few knowledgeable songs about sex that our supposedly sexy music has ever produced. It's also a song about class, you know. Now suddenly he's a star, and he's, by all accounts uh, of his life story, he's enjoying being a star. But you now have time for me that I have money and stardom, but you didn't before when I was installing toilets in the airplanes, right? There's, uh, you know, some bitterness, cynicism. I don't know what the word is. You know, he knows human nature. He knows the good stuff, and he knows the bad stuff. And we have to talk about Use Me. I don't think he's had a song that's been covered or sampled more. I mean, listen to just a few of the folks who have covered Use Me. Uh, Grace Jones. Fiona Apple, D'Angelo, Ben Harper, Ike and Tina Turner, Isaac Hayes, Aaron Neville, and these are my two favorite, Liza Minnelli, and Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> Show me a list anywhere else in pop music that diverse that has covered a song by anyone. Yeah, it, it's an incredible version, Jim. I, it begins the record. You know, I'm not sure where it fell in the actual concert. I... I find it hard to believe that the concert opened with this moment because it's almost like where do you go from there you know but it's so amazing the way it transcends the studio version especially the way Gadsden's drums the way he would you know he'd say baby and then you hear that whack of that kick drum and then uh, baby and then there's another whack from James Gadsden and get it James get it James. you know he was exhorting his band to feel what he was feeling and there's a reason I think this song is resonates for over the decades is because Love songs were traditionally very black and white. It was, you know, you're either in love or you're out of love. This is sort of an in-betweener, you know? And I think that's what Bill Withers was so great about, is just talking about those moments that are in those gray areas, you know? This isn't exactly right, but it doesn't feel wrong. It's like one of those things where human beings go through these kind of complex emotions. You're absolutely right, and I think uh, that love-hate, uh, two-side, good good relationship, bad relationship, toxic mix, right? Uh, I think you have to go to somebody like Mick Jagger to reach anything similar, especially in that era, a song like Angie or something, where I'm drawn to you, but you're destroying me. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And Gatson, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll second that. What an incredible drummer. Yeah, the band is incredible. I think, again, you hear the performance of that band as being part of who Bill Withers is. I think a lot of people may think, oh, a singer-songwriter plays that folk guitar, 
and that's kind of his pocket. And certainly that's where it begins, but I think the band just brings a whole other dimension to it on this record. What's interesting about this record too, Jim, is I think a lot of live albums, and I think one of the reasons people look askance at them who value music is that they're essentially glorified greatest hits collections. They're not really meant for any other purpose other than to be a placeholder in a band's career while they're biding time between the next studio album. Withers had only put out two studio records, so he didn't have a ton of music to draw on at this point in his career. What was fascinating about Live at Carnegie Hall is that he introduced like five songs on this record um, that had not been recorded, including the one that I'm going to focus on next, I Can't Write Left-Handed. This was a song that was never included on a Withers studio album, which boggles my mind because I think it's one of the strongest bits of, of songwriting he'd ever done. But I think maybe he also felt like it needed that audience interaction in order to become what it was. We recorded this song on October the 6th. Since then, the war has been declared over. If you're like me, you'll remember it like anybody remembers any war. One big drag. I just love those hymn-like, wordless backing vocals that set that haunting tone at the start of the song as he's talking about this young kid, this stranger in a strange land who was shot in the shoulder. And it's almost matter-of-fact in the telling of the story, but there's sort of a rage underneath that plain-spoken delivery. And he's talking about, you know, the fate of this kid who went over to Vietnam uh, not really knowing what he was getting into and returning without a right arm. And, you know, I can't write left-handed. is a simple plea, like, this is affecting the way I live day to day. Somebody says go, they don't ask any questions, they just go. And I can remember not too long ago seeing a young guy with his right arm gone. Just got back. And Withers, you know, this was not a story that Withers had to imagine a great deal. I mean, he was in the military for nine years, as you pointed out, Jim, and he knew these guys. He never saw combat, but he knew a lot of his friends who did. And this was part of that sort of memory experience that he brought to his songwriting, you know, drawing in on these tales that he remembered from growing up and, and being a, a young man, you know, a young African-American man in America during a tremendously tumultuous time in our country's history. So this song is so powerful emotionally, and I think the way they sort of build it up and interact with the audience as the song proceeds, uh, turns it into this like incredibly dramatic moment in the show, and also one of the signpost moments of Wither's career. please write a letter, write a letter to my mother. I don't believe I'm going to live to get much older. 
And again, as great as those singles were, I think this may be his single greatest song from my personal viewpoint. Really? Even better than Ain't No Sunshine? You're going to go yeah. with, with... I mean, those songs are great, and I love them to death, but I think I Can't Write Left-Handed, the impact of that song is just, it staggers me every time I hear it, especially in this, you know, with those haunting background harmonies. It just, it just gets me every time. Well, and the humility with which he introduces it. I mean, we have now had, by 72, uh, quite a few years of anti-war anthems. And, you know, Withers, uh, Withers raps with the audience, I think, yeah. are, are one of the reasons this album works. And usually I hate uh, the audience chatter. But he says, you know, a lot of people write about, about wars and government. And he's almost apologizing for doing that. Of course, what he's writing about is humanity. And we feel mm -hmm. the pain of, of this guy he's singing about. And looking through roses glasses I must admit it seemed exciting in a way but something that they overlooked to tell after a short break, we'll explore a few more tracks from live at Carnegie Hall and talk about Withers' early retirement from music that he actually maintained up until his death this year. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner Jim DeRogatis, and this week we're celebrating Bill Withers' life by taking a close look at the outstanding album live at Carnegie Hall. You know, as I said earlier, Greg, you turned me on to this record. You know, not too proud a critic to admit it. It was not in my life until we were doing a speaking gig once, and you went on this sort of <laughs> rhapsodic. Uh, it was an amazing, you know, I'm generally more verbose than you, right? But you just went on this, like, monologue that was like the light <laughs> came from heaven, and it was shining on you as you talked about Bill Withers. And then partly to see if you were wrong, I, I began living with this album for quite some time. So I want to talk about a song that I think encapsulates our long-running partnership. Okay. You know, friendship is a topic that comes up in several of the songs that are on this double album originally. Bill thinks a lot about the relationship in his life, not only romantic, uh, like Use Me, but about other family members. I know you're going to talk about one of those songs, but other buddies, as he calls them, buddies, right? Mm -hmm. And Friend of Mine is a great buddy song. We might have different views sometime, but that's all right. You're still a friend of mine. <laughs> You're still a friend of mine. Sometimes you go your way. Sometimes I go mine. Whoa, but that's all right. You're still a friend of mine. Like mine, whoa, 
So you and I argue all the time. I think we are still friendly, always. Competitive, too, but friendly. And man, oh man, is that just a message that needs to be heard today, as we are at one of the least civil points in American history. We always have more in common than we have uh, setting us apart. And when you disagree, you can disagree while being civil and friendly. You know, this doesn't have to be. Part of this is like growing up, uh, you know, Italian family, right? You can be screaming and yelling and throwing Mm -hmm. things at each other. And the next minute you're hugging and past the uh, meatballs, right? But but one of the things I love about this is the rap in the middle. Again, I hate stage patter, right? But in the mm. middle of Friend of Mine, this loose, funky uh, version that, that breathes and, and just seems to be living and ebbing and flowing, this whole record, every song on this album seems as if it was playing somewhere, maybe in that garage, right, uh, before it got to stage at Carnegie Hall and will be playing long after. Every song, there's not, not really like a beginning or an ending. They all just are, are we, we caught this little part of it, but they always existed. But in the middle of Friend of Mine, uh, you know, Bill starts doing the shout-outs to the band. You know, on drums, we got my good friend, Mr. James Gatson. Uh, you neglected to men- mention earlier, you mentioned the percussionist Bobby Hall, but as as uh, Bill Withers points out, we got us a lady, Bobby Hall, on percussion. Uh, my favorite, though, on bass, we got old, cool Melvin Dunlap. Melvin's so quiet, he said eight words last year, and six of those were airport. <laughs> I love that. And on bass, we got old, cool, quiet Melvin Dunlap. Melvin's so quiet, he said eight words last year. Six of those were airport. But it, it's musical, right? I mean, it, it is it is not uh, stage patter. It becomes part of the song and part of the... I, I can't enjoy the song now without hearing that because I keep thinking mm-hmm. about silent old cool Melvin. The vibe here reminds me of like your favorite uncle sitting around the table at you know Thanksgiving or something telling stories. And he's the one guy you want to tell stories because he's interesting <laughs> and he's entertaining and he's got some stuff to say that you haven't heard anybody else tell quite like him and that's this guy he is this avuncular kind of personality that just the warmth in his voice reflects the warmth in his songs and you realize they're one and the same you know this guy isn't putting on a persona he is this person and i think that really adds to the appeal of what we heard in bill withers music you know we're talking a lot about bill withers conversing not only with his band with his guitar with his songs, reinventing them in some ways. These raps with the audience, these introductions are just priceless. I think the one for Grandma's Hands is just incredible. A lot of folks of all different nationalities and things come up to me and say, I dug my grandmother too. And I remember the first responsibility I ever had was to take care of my grandmother, make sure she got everywhere okay. And at that time, I was maybe five or six years old. And the most I could have done was let her fall on me if she decided to fall. It's hilarious. Whereas the one for I Can't Write Left-Handed is very somber and very uh, stirring in a sort of troubling way. The one for Grandma's Hands is just celebratory. It's just beautiful and makes you laugh out loud. 
you know, he talks about his grandma being a huge part of his life. You know, his parents were working class people. He, his dad died when he was, uh, I think he was about 13 years old. His grandmother played a big part in his life in showing him things and just learning how to become a man. And of course, she was an avid churchgoer. But it was a hip job because grandma never went nowhere but the church. And it wasn't one of them sad churches where they sing them songs that make you wish you could just hurry up and die and get it over with. He would say how, what a big influence the church was on his music because this was not this somber kind of church service that uh, you, know, you may associate with certain kinds of churches. This was up-tempo music at Grandma's church. He makes fun yeah. of the bad church music. He does a couple of bars yeah. of a, not that <laughs> yeah. church music. No, 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 yeah. no, no. It wasn't one of them sad churches where you wish you could just die and get it over with. (laughs) And Lord knows we've all been in some of those. One of them kind of... Let me Grandma and them had one of them churches where they sung. If you want to have me, Jesus, it's all right. If you want to have me, Jesus, it's all right. And at the funeral, they used to have to tie the caskets down. I think this just is another one of those examples of a glimpse into what kind of a person Bill Withers was. I mean, I want to meet his grandma after hearing this introduction. She sounded like a wonderful person. I love that old lady. Love that old lady. And Bill Withers, by extension, sounds like a wonderful human being as well. To be able to celebrate his family members in this way and to share so generously of what they meant in his life in front of the biggest audience of his career to that point. Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well, Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning. She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast. Might fall on a piece of glass. Might be snakes there in the grass. Grandma's hands. Grandma's hands soothe the local unwed mother. Grandma's hands used to ache sometimes and swell. Grandma's hands used to lift her face and tell her she'd say, Baby, Grandma understands that you really love that man. Put yourself in Jesus' hand. Grandma's hands. Yeah, Greg, I couldn't agree more. And I do think that the warmth and that wonderful quality of Bill Withers' personality, who this man was, comes through on every song. And I think it is all the more powerful for, again, this dark shadow that he had at times. A song like Better Off Dead, which is a contemplation of, you know, what is life worth living for, right? Or Harlem, uh, which closes the album paired with with cold baloney harlem cold baloney right this epic more than 13 minute jam it's essentially at its heart a sad song about uh, cold baloney and mayonnaise and bread that's dinner right growing up 
poor. You know, that's where I think the dark and the light collide, and he chooses to go toward the light. Essentially, with this epic jam that never sounds indulgent, it is flowing like a really powerful river the whole time. You know, he ends the concert with this moment, uh, which he extends out to 13 minutes. And, you know, we think about Bill as being a very concise songwriter. He, he managed to get a lot of emotion and a lot of detail into a few short verses. But here, it's about the music, expanding this tale, as you said, of the hard life that it meant. You know, he, he grew up poor. There's no two ways about it. Bologna dinners were pretty common back then and then on Sunday you, you get the indignity of getting shaken down by the preacher yeah. you know so there's there's really no respite in this world Saturday night's the one time you get to cut loose Sunday morning and fall everybody's all dressed up and I hear folks getting in the home from the party What's interesting, you brought this up earlier, Jim, that he did cut a single in, in 1967, and that has surfaced on the net over the years. The A-side is called Three Nights and a Morning, and it's essentially an early test version of Harlem, which was the first song on his first album and closes this concert. Summer night in Harlem Now, you will not recognize the studio version of Harlem when you compare it to the A-side that he recorded in 67 called Three Nights in a Morning. That song is absolutely raucous. Summer night in Harlem, man, it's really hot. Well, it's too hot to sleep, I'm too cold to eat, don't care if I die not. It almost points a direction in what Withers' career might have been had he pursued that direction more fervently at the time. But for whatever reason, it was just a studio one-off. He was making some demos, hoping to attract a record company's interest, and never really returned to that style of music when he was signed to his first label deal. But it surfaces in this Carnegie Hall show as this encore, where Harlem you know, bleeds into that song Cold Baloney, which is essentially a middle ground between the raucousness of that first single that he cut, Three Nights in a Morning, and the studio version of Harlem. So now we start to hear 
an alternative possibility for where Withers' career might have led, which is another reason I love this record, because it shows us a whole new facet of Withers' musical versatility. If you think you've got him figured out based on those first two studio records, guess again, fella, because this is like, you know, another another window into what his music was and what he was capable of with such a great band uh, backing him up. Definitely the high point of his career, Greg, not to slight the albums that followed. There are some good moments and some forgettable moments. The times are changing. By the early 80s, kind of disgusted with the idea of drum machines and synthesizers and that early 80s ubiquitous glossy production, Bill just bows out, right? He just just leaves the music business for all intents and purposes. Uh, that is rare in the history of pop music because nobody retires anymore. Nobody quits anymore. Nobody, people disappear for a year or two and then come back for the reunion tour before we've even realized they left. It's stunning. And and Withers always kind of framed it in a way like people were so shocked that I left the music business. He says, you know, I did many things in my life. I, I was, you know, uh, I worked I worked in the in the military service. I was a milkman. I, I built airplane parts before I be, went into the music business. Then it was something I did from my early 30s into my mid-40s. And then I did something else. I became a dad. I became a parent to two children with whom he was very close up until the day he died. He, he forged this relationship with his family that he considered more important than any kind of a music career at that point. He would made some money having hits and then just got disgusted with the industry itself, the way they were manipulating his music. You know, you mentioned that he basically had that run early in his career where he was able to make the music the way he wanted to. Then he got signed to Columbia Records, and, and basically they, they started telling him what they thought he should do. And at a certain point, he just said, you know what, I'm not interested in making the kind of music you think I should make, be making. Either I do it my way or I, or I quit. And most people don't follow through and actually quit. Well, Bill Withers did, you know, which to me, it's still astonishing to me. I remember that people, you know, promoters were saying if Bill Withers decided to do a tour, you know, that would be a blockbuster. Mm. You know, he would make a ton of money and he could make another record. And there was all this money out there for him to do a comeback. And he, he just said, you know, not interested, never interested, which was stunning to me. Now, can you think of a single artist that has left at the height of their career in the same way that Bill Withers has done. I was digging into this, okay, because our producers are like, you know, has anybody else done this, right? And I got a list here, uh, but I don't think anybody was at the point that Withers was at. Garth Brooks, of course, sells a bazillion records, tries to reinvent himself with a different name, just kind of gives it up after. But then he comes back. Then he comes back, right? Captain Beefheart, you know, had had a long career, a renaissance in New Wave, and then disappears to become a, a painter, a serious fine artist selling work that, that generated a lot more income than music ever did. But he was kind of already in his, like, coda period when he quit. You know, Cat Stevens. You know, the one thing about Beefheart, though, not to interrupt, but I mean, he, he was, um, you know, suddenly he's on Saturday Night Live, right? He's on some yeah. late night talk yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, he was more famous 
with a mainstream audience that he'd ever been. And then he was truly one of those people when he quit, he quit. Yeah, that was I mean, it. He just never, never, never did any more music after Wouldn't that. even talk about his music. I tried to interview him. Nobody. Would, would, he wouldn't talk to anybody. <laughs> Cat Stevens leaves, but, but leaves secular music and the secular world and becomes a Muslim, a devout Muslim. I think the closest parallel, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, is Lauren Hill. Yeah, I mean, even but even Lauren has, you know, done tours and, I mean, Bill, to an extent, would do occasional shows, you know, once in a, every great once in a while, but um, stopped recording. Yeah, Lauren Hill's probably the closest. There's a spiritual connection there, I think, uh, between what Withers was doing and what Lauren Hill was doing. Can't handle the truth in a courtroom of lies. Purges the jurors, witnesses, spies. Crooked lawyers, false indictments, publicizes entertainment, the arraignments, the subpoenas, high profile gladiators, and bloodthirsty. Yeah, I mean, one, one sort of landmark solo record, and then really, really nothing else after that. And uh, that's true. You know, Nicki Minaj quit last year. She said, I'm done, which I sort of frame in the sort of the Jay Z. Uh, reference pool, like, okay, this is my last record, until I decide to make another yeah, one. Yeah, you yeah. know, uh, the Black Album was supposed to be his last one, yeah. right? And then five years later, he comes back. So, we'll see. These retirements very seldom last, but in, in Bill Withers' case, it lasted until the end of his life, which is, to me, all the more remarkable. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away that's our take on Bill Withers live at Carnegie Hall. What do you think of his career and legacy? What is your favorite Bill Withers song? Call our hotline at 888-859-1800 and share your thoughts. When we come back, we'll review the new album from Phoebe Bridgers. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. If she's gone to stay. I don't know when you got to Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a little bit of Garden Song by Phoebe Bridgers on her new album, Punisher, her second album, Greg. Although she's been in all of those super groups and other collaborations that I mentioned earlier, she made a big splash on her own in 2017 out of Los Angeles with Stranger in the Alps. People love that album. We love that album. We did a wonderful event with her at the Goose Island Tap Room in August of 2018. An incredibly talented singer-songwriter. I think a lot of people have been anticipating what is she going to give us with their second album as she goes back into the studio. Uh, Let's play a track, and we'll come back and give our reviews. This is the song Kyoto. It's a single by Phoebe Bridgers from Punisher, her second solo album on Sound Opinions. Day off in Kyoto
That is Kyoto from the new Phoebe Bridgers album, Punisher. A bit of an outlier on the record. It's, a, it's an up-tempo song with that sort of triumphant horn melody in it. And at the same time, of course, underneath the song, there's these lyrics where I'm going to kill you if you don't beat me to it. <laughs> and, you know, and we're laughing yeah. because it is kind of funny. She, Phoebe doesn't get enough credit for being uh, kind of humorous. Uh, there's a dark humor in a lot of her lyrics. People sort of think, oh, she's depressive and writing these melancholy songs. I don't, I don't really hear it that way at all. And clearly the characters in these songs are searching for something. There's The big theme is that search for home, you know, and uh, a little bit of sprinkling of, oh, by the way, the world's ending too, you know. Um, she, she gave a fascinating interview. Stephen Hyden did a really nice interview with her where she talks about uh, millennials being the first generation not to see a better future for themselves, you know, in, in, in a while, much less having kids, you know, for, for their yeah. kids' future. And, uh, but at the same time, it's not a depressing album. Um, the songs are really well written in terms of just the imagery in the songs. I, I, I feel like there's constant flow of these very vivid images where you feel like you're in the room with her as she's working out these issues with a friend or a boyfriend or whoever whoever is the, the subject of the songs. And then I love that Boy Genius uh, reunion on Graceland 2 with Lucy Dacus and Julian Baker. And that, that song, I mean, what a beginning. No longer a danger to herself or others, she made up her mind and laced up her shoes, yelled down the hall, but nobody answered, so she walked outside without an excuse. Yeah, I'd read that yeah, short story. Yeah, yeah, I'd watch yeah, that movie. Yeah. You know, I want to know yeah. how that turns out. So, know. Um, you know, the, the songs aren't super obvious in terms of what they're about, but I find myself fascinated by what's, what's happening here in these songs. There's a darkness here that I think very much speaks to the mood of that millennial generation in this very trying time. And at the same time, uh, the melodies are beautiful and, and the, the sense of the art being at a very high level. Uh, you know, you got Jim Keltner playing drums on some of these songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like fascinatingly well-crafted records. She's taking more chances sonically with the production. The songs are more fleshed out. I think it's a huge step up for Phoebe Bridgers. No, it's a brilliant record, Greg. And when you get people like uh, the, the famous uh, session musician Jim Keltner to play, and then Connor Oberst, and then Lucy Dacus, Nick Zinner of uh, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs on guitar, Jenny Lee Lindbergh of uh, Warpaint on bass, uh, it's a testament. People want to work with her. She has described Punisher as an open letter to Elliot Smith, an artist that, uh, that meant a lot to her, and she's living now in the Silver Lake area of Los Angeles, where he uh, was living at the end of his life. Um, that humor, uh, that depth, that emotion, the confessional sense, but then also, you know, I, I'm not so sure you said Kyoto was a, an outlier. I think the, uh, the last song on the record, I Know the End, uh, which builds to that triumphant, uh, but also warning cry of the end is coming. Yeah, 
So everybody talks about that novelistic eye for detail. But damn, she has it. When you listen to the song Halloween, what I was getting from all of my friends in New York at the height of the deaths from COVID every day uh, was that the sirens were nonstop on the streets of New York 24-7. And in Halloween, uh, Phoebe Bridgers is talking about those sirens, and then she's cracking wise. I used to joke that if they woke you up, somebody better be dying. I hate living by the hospital The sirens go all night I used to joke that if they woke you up Somebody better be dying you know, I don't think that's a cruel line. I, I think that's a line of, uh, of uh, you know, sometimes in the face of tragedy, all you can do is laugh. So there is that novelistic detail, and uh, and there is this mix of triumphant music with sometimes some very dark themes. It's just a fantastic record. Baby, it's For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The show was produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. I'm in the kitchen, I'm cooking and mixing and fixing the sauces, and I'll call you back. Running around in the city, I run it, I like it, I'm busy, so I'll call you back. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Malka calling from New York City where there are currently fireworks every night and protests every day. But I'm calling about your recent episode on instant commentary songs, and I wanted to call out an artist who is really, really talented, but I think underappreciated, and has a great song in this vein, and that is Hooray for the Riff Raff, with her song Reek and Beach off the excellent album The Navigator that came out in 2017. The song is short, the song is well-crafted, and it packs a punch without being overly literal. You could almost think that it's responding to all of American history, sadly, and not something in particular, if not for the line where she very clearly says, they'll build a wall to keep us out. Anyway, thanks for the show. Love listening to you guys every week, and keep doing what you're doing. What's going on? This is Scott from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm uh, listening to your show about protest songs, uh, specifically some that came out shortly after the Iraq War. And uh, what came to mind was War Party by Guar. Uh, typically not an overtly political band, but uh, they definitely came out with that one. I thought it was a pretty rock and metal tune from them. So uh, just a thought. I appreciate it. Don't 
Hi, my name's Kelly Thompson. I live in uh, Coos Bay, Oregon. I think that was one of your best shows. Uh, I loved the uh, protest songs um, that were more current, and I'm 68 years old, so I remember all the other ones. If there was a song that I thought was a little, I know you're probably going to think it's mushy, but I think There's a Hole in the World Tonight by the Eagles was pretty pretty touching for me because it really kind of hit home on the whole, you know, kind of backing off on the animosity and trying to figure out the, uh, you know, the whole madness at one time. Anyway, thank you. That was a great show. Take care. Hello, this is Robert from Marin City, and I'm just calling um, to make a comment on Murdermost File. I was listening to it, and you know, I've come to realize that Murdermost File is Bob Dylan doing freestyling. You know, he's got his own music in the background, and uh, it's not as fast as Kendrick Lamar or anything, but it's, it's pretty good. Thanks. Play Oscar Peterson, play Stan Gantz. Play Blue Sky, play Dickie Betts Play I Pepper, Thelonious Monk Charlie Parker, and all that junk All that junk and all that jazz Play something for the Birdman of Alcatraz Play Buster No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. They cry me a river for the Lord of the Gods. They never die, they never sing.